So this morning, as we continue our study in biblical theology, we'll be looking at the prophesied kingdom. So this is the second part of what I started last week, the prophesied kingdom part two. So Pastor Ron and I have been using a book resource by Vaughn Roberts, and it's his book, God's Big Picture, tracing the storyline of the Bible. It's a picture of it. Um, You may have one of these two copies, same content, different artwork. Uh, But this is the book we've been using sort of as a a basis as we uh, trace what God is doing throughout redemptive history as we consider biblical theology. Uh, Last Sunday, uh, we talked about the prophets as God's mouthpiece. So just a quick recap before we get into new material. Last Sunday, we talked about the prophets as God's mouthpiece. In other words, the prophets spoke the word of God to the people. Um, I also talked about the prophets as covenant enforcers. So one of the roles of the prophets was to enforce the covenant, to urge the people to obey it and remind them of the blessings that followed if they'd obeyed it and the curses that followed if they disobeyed it. So they were covenant enforcers. So unfortunately, if you um, look at history, the history of Israel, most of the time the prophets were coming um, not with a word of um, encouragement, you've been uh, doing well, blessing is coming, but it was most often uh, a a word of admonishment. You are uh, rejecting the Lord your God. You are rejecting Yahweh. Uh, The Lord has provided for you, and he is to be your king, but you you are rejecting him. And so it was usually turn from your sin and turn back to the true and living God. And that's the common pattern of God's people in the Old Testament, rejecting Yahweh and uh, the punishment that followed their rebellion. And that punishment was seen in God sending his people into exile. That was a form of God disciplining his people so that they would learn to, uh, so that they would return to the Lord and see that The Lord does do what he's promised to do. Uh, It shouldn't have been surprising to the people that they ended up in exile because the Lord told them, if you disobey, this is the consequence. I'm going to send you into exile. And so we see that in the Old Testament. Now, while Israel may have forgotten their vows to God, God had not forgotten his covenant with Abraham. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. And so we ended last week on a note of hope of God uh, not forgetting his covenant with Abraham, but purposing to do what he decreed that he would do. And what I mean is that this covenant, that that there is a conditional element to God's promises. Uh, It's made clear uh, through Moses that uh, there would be, uh, that Israel would disqualify themselves uh, if they did not obey the promises. But there's also a, an unconditional element to God's promise, um, the promise to Abraham, in that it was a guaranteed commitment. So within God's promise to Abraham, within the Abrahamic covenant, there are, there's an und- a conditional aspect and an unconditional aspect to that covenant. And so God's covenant, which is the basis of the prophet's message of judgment, is also the basis of their message of hope. Why? 
because they foretold of a time to come of a future kingdom. And that's what we'll look at today. The prophesied kingdom, part two, this future kingdom that's to come. So what does this future kingdom look like? Well, there would be a new exodus. There would be a new covenant. There would be a new nation. There would be a new Jerusalem. There would be a new temple. Um, and there would be an even new creation. So God is not going to rebuild the partial kingdom model, but he's actually establishing that to which the partial kingdom pointed, the real thing, the perfect kingdom. And in that perfect kingdom, it's as we've been tracing our theme, God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. So first, <clears throat> let's look at the people of God and this kingdom that is prophesied about. What does the people look like? And the prophesied kingdom, the people of God will be the remnant of Israel. That should be the first point on your sheet there. Uh, God's people, the remnant. <clears throat> Although God brought judgment on his people, he did not destroy them completely. He could have, but he did not destroy them completely. And so a remnant would be preserved, out of whom God would create a new nation. So again, we're thinking about the prophesied kingdom, this kingdom that's to come, and that new kingdom, God will create a new nation. Uh, let me have someone read Isaiah 20, 20, Isaiah 10, 20 to 21 for us here. In that day, the wonder of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, and no more leave on him, who struck them, but will leave on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Okay, thank you. And it's interesting that Isaiah even has a son that he names Shear Jeshub, which means a remnant will return. And this was common in the Old Testament for the Lord to uh, give a person a name to communicate what he's um, a message that he wants to get to the people. Uh, we see this in uh, with, with Hosea and in other places as well. And so this name that Isaiah gives his son is meant to underline this message of this remnant that pointed again to this future kingdom. Another feature of the prophesied kingdom was a new exodus. There would be a new exodus. And when we think about the plight of uh, the people of Judah in exile in Babylon, you notice this similarity uh, to Israel in Egypt, in this slavery. As God rescues them, as he rescued them then in Egypt, he will rescue them again from Babylon. So there will be a new exodus. Jeremiah 16, 14 to 15 says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, excuse me, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of a people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But it'll be said, 
as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. So Yahweh would again deliver his people from their bondage to slavery. And it's important to note here that they're being delivered from bondage uh, and slavery uh, to Babylon was really a physical salvation that pointed to the need and reality of a spiritual deliverance, a spiritual salvation. That deliverance from Babylon wasn't the end in itself. It was, it was a pointer. It was a type of deliverance, a type of that great deliverance that came only through Jesus Christ. Uh, Nehemiah Cox, I've mentioned him before. He's extremely helpful. You should be familiar with him. and I want to make you more familiar with him. Nehemiah Cox is one of our particular Baptists or Reformed Baptist uh, forefathers. Uh, he's one of the men who heavily contributed to the formulation and the, um, articulation of the 1689 Confession. When he worked through his own frame for biblical theology, as he considered redemptive history, he looked at Israel's deliverance from Egypt and he said this, Israel's merciful redemption out of Egypt was in some respect to be referred to this covenant as its spring. Although it was not immediately and in its own nature a new covenant blessing to those who partook in it, all the dealings of God with them, with Israel, as a select and peculiar people in covenant with himself were subservient to the great end of the covenant with Abraham. In other words, um, in looking at this pattern of deliverance in the Old Testament, deliverance from Egypt, deliverance from Babylon, these were subservient, these were um, pointers to uh, the end of the Abrahamic covenant, which was salvation through the offspring of Abraham, the offspring being Jesus. And so I agree with Cox. This was a type, deliverance from Egypt, deliverance from Babylon. It's a type of deliverance that pointed to the freedom from enslavement, not enslavement to a nation, but enslavement to sin and Satan. That's the ultimate deliverance that anyone needs. And so there's this pattern of deliverance that you see in the Old Testament. This is the pattern. Deliverance from Egypt, deliverance from Babylon, deliverance from sin. Colossians 1.13. Let me have someone read this for us. Some of these, uh, my verses will be from the NASB. Um, I appreciate how it reads, so... If you see the NASB, that's why. Um, so Colossians 1.13. Someone want to read this for us? Listen to the language here. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Thank you, Forrest. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. So New Testament words like redemption, uh, redeem, deliverance, deliver, ransom, purchase, slavery, freedom. This is all vocabulary used of Israel um, in their exodus event. 
the physical offspring of Abraham was delivered from Egypt. The physical offspring of Abraham, most of them at least, were delivered from Babylon. But only those who walk in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham were delivered from the ultimate slave master, sin. And so this is this, this pattern of deliverance. Those who walked in the footsteps of Abraham, Father Abraham, uh, they believed God's promise of rescue through God's servant. And that will be the next point that we look at on your sheet. God's servant, this servant of God. So Isaiah tells us that the new exodus will be achieved by a mysterious figure he calls the servant. Sometimes the servant is identified as a nation of Israel. Where do we see that? Well, we see it first in Isaiah 44, verses 1 to 2. <clears throat> Look at what it says. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. So here, speaking of Israel, but in other passages, it's clear that the servant is actually a person, a person who will be used by God to rescue the remnant of Israel. Let me have someone read this next slide for us. Isaiah 49, 5-6. Now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thank you. So this is interesting, and the, the Bible does this in a few different places where it uses a word or a phrase, and it sort of, uh, in, in that instance, leaves you wondering about who it's referring to. So this servant, is it Israel, or is it this uh, this person, this, this deliverer, uh, this one who will deliver Israel. Well, in Isaiah 52 and 53, we see similar language, this uh, servant or suffering servant language. In Isaiah 52, 13 to 14, which Pastor Jack taught on last, last Lord's Day, it says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form, be, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And then lastly, in Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 5. <clears throat> so remember here, we're looking at the identity of the servant. In verses 4 or 5, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So I mentioned that at times the phrase uh, for this servant is used to speak of Israel, but at other times it's used to speak of a person. In Isaiah 53, this servant will achieve the rescue by his death. This individual is both the true Israel and the one who dies for the remnant of Israel. And so God's people are rescued from their sin through the servant. This prophecy of the suffering servant was to be fulfilled, how? And the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus said of himself, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. And so this language here of the servant and thinking about the prophesied kingdom, um, this language of the servant who would deliver seems to be Israel, seems to be Christ. Um, but I think further revelation shows us that it's speaking of Jesus, the servant of God. Okay, moving down on your note sheet, we're going to look at the inclusion of the nations. The inclusion of the nations. <clears throat> now, we've already touched on this passage um, or this sort of idea in passing, but just to emphasize it again, uh, the role and redemption of the suffering servant goes beyond Israel. The Abrahamic covenant on one level always included the nations. Remember Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So how would the nations be blessed through Abraham? The same way that believing Israel was blessed through Abraham. By faith and aid in Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. Uh, let me have someone read this for us. Isaiah 49, 6. He says, it is to light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserves of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thank you. I will make you as a light for the nations. Why? That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So the promise to Abraham of blessing to the nations will be fulfilled in the new covenant when salvation is accomplished and confirmed in Jesus Christ. Now, remembering uh, again that we're looking at the prophesied kingdom uh, in which the, God's people in the prophesied kingdom is the remnant of Israel and includes the nations, the inclusion of the nations. Next, we're going to look at God's place in the prophesied kingdom. God's place 
and his prophesied kingdom, there being a new temple and a new creation. A new temple and a new creation. First, the new temple. The book of Ezekiel uh, begins with this vision of the glory of God leaving the temple in Jerusalem. So this is an act of judgment, and it's also God withdrawing from his people, which is the worst thing that could happen to them. The building is now just an empty shell, and it's only a matter of time before it's destroyed by the Babylonians. But the book of Ezekiel does end on this helpful note as Ezekiel has this other vision of this new temple, this temple that is more marvelous than the first, and he actually sees God entering the temple, right? So he's, he has this vision of something that's to come that is more marvelous, it's more glorious, than, the, than the, the perished temple, and God is entering this temple again. Uh, Desmond Alexander, in his book, Eden to the New, the New Jerusalem, says this. Um, I put a picture of it so you didn't think I was just changing my name and quoting myself. Desmond, T. Desmond Alexander. It's, it's a real thing. So he says this in his commentary on Ezekiel's new temple. He says, in this vision of this new temple that Ezekiel has. He says, there is an artificiality to the lengthy vision that suggests its contents are to be taken as symbolic. For example, the river that flows from the center of the temple keeps on growing despite the lack of tributaries or despite the lack of streams adding to it. Ezekiel 47, one to six and its waters desalinate or purify the Dead Sea, Ezekiel 47, 8 to 10. And mark contrast to Ezekiel's earlier visions of judgment, the emphasis here is upon the return of God's presence. Significantly, the vision concludes with Yerushalayim, or Jerusalem, being named Yahweh uh, Sumah, the Lord is there. He goes on to say, although Ezekiel's vision in chapters 40 to 48 is a highly idealized picture of the future, it communicates powerfully like the concluding chapters of Isaiah that God is still committed to making the whole earth his new dwelling place, establishing in the process a temple city. So much more could be said about this this temple theme in scripture. For instance, I'll tell you what more could be said about it. The glory of God departs from the Old Testament temple, never to return in the same way again. Yet, Christ is referred to as Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God literally tabernacles amongst his people again. Christ's own body was the temple of God's special presence. Then, when Christ ascended into heaven, he and the Father both send the Holy Spirit, who dwells in what? Not a building, but his people. Then Ephesians says that we, joined together, grow into a holy temple of the Lord. That language used by the Spirit is not accidental. It's intentional and it's purposeful. 
Ephesians 2. Someone read this for us, if you don't mind. <clears throat> in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Thank you. So this is amazing. And this, again, this language isn't accidental, right? So the Spirit is it's communicating something and building on something that uh, it would, would have been familiar in the mind of uh, someone who was Jewish. We grow into a holy temple, pointing right back to the Old Testament, this temple where God's presence dwelled um, in the Lord. And him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. How? By the Spirit. So, again, something's happening here that we need to sort of take note of and shift as uh, the Spirit is communicating here um, about the temple of God, departed, Christ, tabernacle amongst us, Christ ascends, sends the Spirit. We now become the temple, that place of God's where God dwells in his people and with his people. And even though this is true and it's amazing, even we together as a temple of the Lord, we're not the final goal of the temple. We are waiting that place that Christ has gone to prepare for us, that place where unrighteousness dwells. We are heading toward that better country that Hebrews 11 speaks of. Right? So there's this tracing this theme of the temple in the prophesied kingdom. This leads to our next point, the new creation. The new creation. Ezekiel's vision of a new temple is articulated with language that cannot simply refer to one building on earth. It is a symbol of the new creation. God's plan of salvation is not limited to the Israelites or even to human beings of all nations. The creator of everything is going to completely undo the effects of the fall and renew the whole world. As the world was cleansed through judgment in the days of Noah, so it will be at the end of this age when Christ returns and the world is cleansed again. How? By fire. Colossians 2 reminds us that God is reconciling all things in Christ. Ephesians 1 tells us that all things are being united in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Again, God is undoing the effects of the fall and renewing the whole world, not just the garden, but at that time, the whole world will be the special place of God's presence, that place of God's special presence. The new Jerusalem in which his people live is not a city located somewhere on earth. It is a new creation. Someone, if you wouldn't mind reading this for us, Isaiah 65. But behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Thank you. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. 
And then Isaiah, and then sorry, uh, Revelation 21, 1 to 4 says, I'll read this, it's a longer, slightly longer passage. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Not just a new place with city limits, but a new creation. Okay. So we'll spend most of the rest of our class looking at God's rule and God's blessing. God's rule and God's blessing. So God's king who inaugurates the new covenant governs the kingdom that the prophets speak about. And this prophesied kingdom, again, we're, we're looking with the prophets at this prophesied kingdom, this future kingdom that is to come. Where we are in the redemptive timeline, they're speaking of something that is coming. <clears throat> so God's king who inaugurates a new covenant governs the kingdom with, um, governs the kingdom that the prophets speak about. So first we're going to look at, under God's rule and blessing, we're going to look at the new covenant. The new covenant. Have someone read this lengthy passage. If that's too small, you can just turn to it. I'm determined to fit all the text on one slide. So. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant has been broke. Though I was, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for, that, for they shall know, all know me, for the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Okay, thank you. So there's a lot there, but we'll draw out a little of it. And so as we think about the new covenant and this uh, prophesied kingdom, we could probably ask, what makes the new covenant new? For this portion of uh, my class, I'm going to be drawing um, a lot from Jeff Johnson's uh, The Fatal Flaw. I'll basically be reading through portions um, of a chapter that he has entitled Deference or Difference in Efficacy. In other words, uh, uh, who the New Covenant is affected upon um, and how it's affected. Okay. <clears throat> My notes printed out weird. That's no, okay. 
So there are a lot of helpful books that articulate the New Covenant. But I like Johnson because he's, he's concise in, in this book. So how does Jeremiah say the New Covenant would be different? Let's try to answer that question. What makes the New Covenant new? First, those who participated in the Old Covenant broke their covenant. Those who participated in the Old Covenant broke their covenant. On the other hand, the New Covenant is unbreakable. It would be unconditional. In other words, it's not conditioned on our ability to keep it. The New Covenant also reveals to us that the distinction of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is a distinction of law and grace. By faith, Abraham's spiritual children are justified in the sight of God. They obtained righteousness by faith apart from works of the law, Romans 3.28. And then in Romans 8.3, we see... In Romans 8, 3 to 4, it says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So what could the law not do? It could not justify sinners. And so instead of living to earn life by the law, the righteous now shall live by faith. In this way, the new covenant brings about the forgiveness of sin. <clears throat> Again, Jeremiah uh, 31, 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the essential difference between the old and the new covenants. So I've said that the distinction of the old and the new covenant is a distinction of law and grace, and that's true. But what I, I want to sort of talk about what I don't mean when I say that. I don't mean that the new covenant leads us to being antinomian. What is antinomian? Antinomian means anti or against law. As we're thinking about the new covenant, we shouldn't land on a theology that says that the moral law has no place in the new covenant. Why? Because God's standard of righteousness has been the same throughout all of redemptive history. The law is a reflection of God's moral goodness and righteousness of God. Therefore, the law cannot change because God cannot change because he's Immutable, right? So the new covenant doesn't change uh, the essence of God's moral law, but it gives it a different function. In the old covenant, the law is written on tablets of stone and placed over the sinner, and so the sinner is under the law. He was bound by the law to keep the law in order to be right in the sight of God. Israel was unwilling and morally unable to keep the law, so the law brought condemnation upon them. 
On the contrary, in the new covenant, the essence of God's moral law has been written where? On fleshly tablets. It's written on the heart. The law is no longer placed over the sinner, but within him. In other words, God's new covenant people are not under the law, but under grace. And so this accomplishes two things. First, it brings the forgiveness of sin by the merits of Christ, righteousness to the believer. It brings the forgiveness of sin by the merits of Christ's righteousness. Second, it brings a true desire in the inward ability to obey the law of God. And so the new covenant doesn't do away with God's law, but it actually establishes it. Now it's interesting that the law of God is referred to differently in the old covenant context and in the new covenant context. For example, under the old covenant, it's referred to as a law of bondage. I'm gonna jump through a few scriptures here that will all be up um, on my PowerPoint. So those of you who are not shy of uh, reading publicly, put it up, jump at it, pop, 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 right? So again, Old Covenant context is referred to as a law of bondage. First, Romans 7, 1. You can read for us if you don't mind. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? That the law is binding on a person. And then Galatians 4, 3 to 4. Someone would read that for us. Born of woman, born under the law. <clears throat> now, let me also read Galatians, uh, Galatians 3. I'm going to read from verses 21 to 26. Right? Yes. 21 to 26. Now, as I read this, listen to this uh, faith law language that Paul uses here in Galatians 3, 21 and 26. It sort of jumps back and forth. Paul uses this faith law language and he uses um, this uh, flesh spirit language in his, in his writings. <clears throat> and he's communicating something through that language. So Galatians 3, 21 and 26, it says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, I'm sorry, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then, the law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Faith law, faith law, faith guardian, faith law, faith guardian. Now, let's jump over to the other way in which the law of God is referred to. Under the new covenant, the law, the, the, the law is referred to as a law of liberty. In a new covenant context, it's referred to as a law of liberty. When I say new covenant context, I don't mean in reading through uh, the, the New Testament, it's always referred to this way. When I say new covenant context, I mean for those who are regenerated and um, members, participants in the, the new covenant. Um, in the new covenant context, the law is referred to as a law of liberty. So bondage, old covenant context, liberty, new covenant context. James 1.25 says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And then James 2.12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And so the law and the Mosaic covenant led to bondage because it demanded a righteousness which sinners could not perform. The law in the new covenant leads to liberty because it finds no fault in those who stand by faith in the righteousness of Christ. But the law in the new covenant also is also liberating because it shows Christians how to express the love that they have for God and for their neighbors. So the person who has been regenerated has a new relationship with God and he has a new relationship with the law. They're not opposed to the commands of God. They actually take delight in the statutes of God as much as they delight in God himself. And so there has been a change, but the change is not in the law of God. The change is in the heart of the man. Okay, does that make sense? Right, so there's this change um, in the man, uh, not in the law of God. Okay, so these next three sections will be uh, a lot shorter, just a really quick overview as we close out. Um, so the new king, we're looking at the prophesied kingdom. <clears throat> And um, what God is doing, or will do, through his uh, king um, in the new covenant. So we looked at the new covenant, now the new king. As God ruled through a king in the days of the old covenant, he would also do it again in the new covenant. As we consider the prophesied kingdom, the prophets build on the promise that God made in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14. So I won't read it right now, just for the sake of time, but note the scripture, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16. Um, God's covenant with David to give him uh, a king to sit on this throne. God told David that there would be an eternal, universal king who would sit, um, who would come from his line and sit on his throne. 
The salvation of God's people and the fulfillment of all God's promises depend on the coming of this anointed one. This king who was a son of David, yet greater than David, Christ the Messiah. So Pastor Ron uh, did a great job in drawing out Jesus as the Messianic king a couple of weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think that class was the, um, the partial kingdom part two. Is that right, Ron? Maybe? Yep. All right. <laughs> I got a nod. Okay, so moving down on your note sheet, uh, great blessing. We'll, yep, so great blessing. In the prophesied kingdom, the time of fulfillment will be characterized by great blessing for the whole world. Um, with God's rule established, everything falls into place again. There's a return to the blessing of Eden, which included peace and prosperity. There's a return to the blessing of Eden, but this will be greater than Eden. Amos 9, 13 to 14. Someone want to read that for us? Thank you. Okay, so closing out, let's look at the return from exile. So after about 60 years um, of being in exile, uh, Cyprus of Persia defeats the Babylonians and issues this edict. Um, and this decree allows the exiles to return and rebuild their temple. And it's not easy. There's definitely opposition. But eventually, a new temple is built. Under Ezra's leadership, the centrality of God's law is reestablished as the regulator for all of life. There's Ezra, maybe. Or a picture of Ezra. Um, so after Ezra establishes God's law, Nehemiah leads the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. When the foundation of this new temple is laid, the younger people and the older people respond differently. Uh, what do the younger people do? They rejoice and they, they're, they're happy about this new temple. And the older people do what? They cry. They, they weep. Why? Because they know that this new temple is not even close to what it used to be. And at the same time, it's not anything near what Ezekiel prophesied it would be. So while the people were disappointed and lamenting over the temple, the prophets were disappointed and lamenting over the people. Why? Because God's law is still disobeyed by the people, despite Israel's calling the people back to obedience to the law. They don't have new hearts. They're still wicked and disobedient, just like the generations before them. They did not learn their lesson from exile. Spiritually speaking, God's people are still in exile, waiting for the Lord to return to them and to fulfill all his promises of salvation. God's kingdom has still not come because God's king has not come. So as the prophets speak of this future kingdom, the Old Testament ends 
on a note of waiting for God to send his promised Messiah to deliver his people from their own spiritual exile. But before that happens, he must first send the one to prepare the way for the exile, or sorry, the way for the Messiah. And that's where we'll pick up in our next class entitled, The Time Has Come. The time has come. Okay, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us a a sharper vision of you, a better grip um, on your word and what you're doing throughout redemptive history. Um, May you uh, bless us, Lord, as we have heard these things articulated. May we meditate on them and give thought to them and study our words and to study our words and to study the scriptures. Um, Lord, may you bless us now as we go into uh, the congregation to hear the preached word. Um, And may you meet us there as your word is opened and proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen.